You're listening to a podcast from Oasis Church Bath. To find out more about us, visit our website at www.oasisbath.org. Brilliant. So I am going to be uh, carrying on our series today. So we're doing a series at the moment called What If?, which is all about dreaming about alternatives. I guess, how could our world be different? And today I'm going to be thinking about what if there's a place for everyone? What if there's a place for everyone? Uh, As hopefully you know, uh, you won't if you're new, but we're using this book to help us with this series called Binding the Strongman by Ched Myers, which is like a very meaty political commentary. It's not one of those books that you read from cover to cover. Let me tell you, I was quite scared when Rob gave me a copy. I was like, I'm not going to read the whole thing. But luckily, you can look up the bits that are... And it's just amazing. It's full of all this kind of context, social context, history stuff that helps you just understand what um, those verses mean in their original context. So it's been amazing to explore that a little bit. And I'm going to be focusing on one particular story as told in Mark's Gospel, and we're going to begin by reading that. So the words will appear on the screen, and they're from Mark chapter 5, and verses 21 to 42. And I'm reading from the NIV version. When Jesus had again crossed over by boat to the other side of the lake, a large crowd gathered around him while he was by the lake. Then one of the synagogue leaders named Jairus came, and when he saw Jesus, he fell at his feet. He pleaded earnestly with him, my little daughter is dying. Please come and put your hands on her so that she will be healed and live. So Jesus went with him. A large crowd followed and pressed around him. And a woman was there who'd been subject to bleeding for 12 years. She had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and had spent all she had, Yet instead of getting better, she grew worse. When she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak because she thought, if I just touch his clothes, I will be healed. Immediately, her bleeding stopped and she felt in her body that she was freed from her suffering. At once, Jesus realized that power had gone out from him. He turned around in the crowd and asked, who touched my clothes? You see the people crowding around against you his disciples answered and yet you ask who touched me but Jesus kept looking around to see who had done it then the woman knowing what had happened to her came and fell at his feet and trembling with fear told him the whole truth he said to her daughter your faith has healed you go in peace and be freed from your suffering while Jesus was still speaking some people came from the house of Jairus the synagogue leader Your daughter is dead, they said. Why bother the teacher anymore? Overhearing what they said, Jesus told him, don't be afraid, just believe. He did not let anyone follow him except Peter, James and John, the brother of James. When they came to the home of the synagogue leader, Jesus saw a commotion with people crying and wailing loudly. He went in and said to them, why all this commotion and wailing? The child is not dead, but asleep. But they laughed at him. After he put them all out, he took the child's father and mother and the disciples who were with him and went in where the child was. He took her by the hand and said to her, Talitha kum, which means little girl, I say to you, get up. Immediately, the girl stood up and began to walk around. She was 12 years old. At this, they were completely astonished. 
an amazing story, but one that provokes a lot of questions, and I think one that requires a lot of unpacking and contextualising to fully understand its meaning and power. So today my plan is to talk a little bit about um, like honour-shame culture and how that functioned in Jewish society in the time of Jesus. And that is important because it will then help us to understand some of the specifics of the story itself, which we'll look at. And finally, we'll think about how that impacts the places people have in our society today. And perhaps I think how God might be calling us to turn some of that on its head. So, honour-shame culture. So Judaism in first century Palestine is the sort of social context of Mark's gospel. So it's, it's, the, it's the kind of place, the moment, the time, um, the social context of this story. And you could describe that context as being within an honour culture. And this quote from a theologian Bruce Maliner, I think, sums it up really well and just helps us to understand a little bit about what honour culture is. So honour stands for a person's rightful place in society, his social standing, this honour place is marked off by boundaries consisting of power, sexual status and position on the social ladder. Honour is a claim to worth along with the social acknowledgement of worth. The purpose of honour is to serve as a sort of social rating which entitles a person to interact in specific ways with his or her equals, superiors and subordinates. So a lot in there, but basically honour culture relates to, I think, who you are and whose you are, how much power you hold and what you're allowed to do with that power, how other people see you and who is kind of above you and below you in society and what you can and can't do because of all of those things. Now, we don't live in an honour culture anymore, but I think there are sort of similar aspects of culture, aren't they, from our own experience that, you know, might, we might relate to some of this. And also, I think some metaphors and things can help us perhaps understand it a little bit more. So, hopefully, some of you will be familiar with the 1985 cult classic, The Breakfast Club, such a good film, although it was terrifying that it was 1985, which is the year after I was born. It's a super old film now, which means I'm super old. Um, but yeah... If you've not seen it, basically several teenagers from different sort of social groups are forced together to suffer the punishment of Saturday in detention, something thankfully I never had to experience. Um, but there is sort of stereotypically speaking these kind of different teenagers. So there's a, a sort of snob, a nerd, a jock, a punk and an introverted outcast. And I think these are, you know... Um, perhaps American archetypes, aren't they, of, of teenage social groupings. So they're not exactly the same as this country. But I wonder, what was it like when you were at school, or if you're still at school, what, um, what are those sort of social distinct uh, groups that you see existing in those places? And so for me, I think there was very much these different groups when I think back to being at school. And I'd probably say, I think the main groups were like the popular kids, the geeks, the skaters slash stoners, because they usually went together, and what I would just define as the unnoticeables. So I think the popular kids were like, you know, the super good-looking ones, and they had all the latest clothes, and they probably, I think, had the sort of highest honour or social standing. The geeks were super brainy and were the ones that got bullied a bit, I think, and the skaters or stoners were, you could probably guess what they were into, and I would define the unnoticeables as the kids that's, that kind of kept their heads down and didn't do anything geeky enough to get picked on, but weren't quite cool enough to be classed as a popular kid either. And when I think back, there were all these unsaid rules about, you know, who you were allowed to talk to and who could sit with who and, um, you know, what you might do to transition from one group to another and um, that kind of thing. And 
yeah, I think that metaphor is helpful, but the, there is a huge difference with honour culture and the way we're talking about it, and in that um, it wasn't an informal system that was sort of unspoken, like perhaps the one I've just described, but it was actually very formal. So there were all these set rules, uh, Jewish law, which determined a lot of the do's and don'ts in terms of social class and status. And society functioned on this set of rules. So it was the way things were. It was what everyone did and what everyone accepted. And it's worth noting as well that the roles of, of men and women were very different in that, in that culture. So men had a very set sort of patriarchal role, which was all about the sort of defense of status and entitlement. And women had the job, and Ched Myers from the, the Binding the Strong book says that they basically had the job of what he calls preserving the consciousness of the group boundaries, otherwise known as shame. And women also, I mean, they basically had no role in public life and they were actually de denied a lot of basic human rights. So honour culture is great if you're at the top of the food chain, if your social status was high, if you were male, but if you were poor or you were in a low class or a woman, then this system was oppressive, discriminatory and really damaging. And that's why I think what Jesus does in this story is just so ridiculously cool. Um, and I think Chad Myers, again, sums it up really well when he describes it as this. So Jesus breaks the rules and expectations of honor culture, subverting the status quo in order to create new possibilities of human community. Ugh, just like what an amazing sentence that is. And I actually think this is kind of this is what we're called to do as well. So you can kind of put your own name in there that, you know, we're called to break the rules and expectations of what the equivalent is of, of this culture in our society, subverting the status quo in order to create new possibilities of human community. So hopefully that sets the scene a little bit, helps you understand a little bit more about honor, shame, culture. So let's, um, yeah, let's get into the specifics of the story. So I think Mark, who's obviously telling the story, presents us with two very different women, doesn't he? But he shapes the story in such a way to juxtapose the two extremes of the Jewish social scale. And you might have noticed the number 12 is used to link these two women together. So you've got Jairus's daughter, who's 12 years old, which we hear about at the end, and the bleeding woman has been bleeding for 12 years. So that's a deliberate strategy by Mark to link these two females together. And he does that to expose, I think, some of the really stark differences in their experience. So, done a table, love a table. I can't quite go as far as a spreadsheet, but um, that's probably a relief to, to lots of you. So I just thought it was interesting to sort of see these two things next to each other. And if you're listening to the podcast, don't worry, I'm about to read out what's in the table. Um, but if you look at the, the experience of these two uh, two women. So you've got Jairus's daughter. So first of all, um, her father, Jairus, is actually named, which is quite rare when Mark's telling stories about people who doesn't usually sort of use their name. So that automatically tells us that this was an important person. This was somebody with, you know, with status. Um, whereas with the bleeding woman, she's not named and she doesn't have a male in the story to represent her or fight for her. Uh, Jairus seeks Jesus out. He takes this very assertive male approach, indicating actually that he was socially equal or saw himself as socially equal as, as Jesus, who would have been kind of seen as a, a wise teacher or, or the equivalent of a Jewish rabbi. And he is the head of his family, and he was therefore, you know, it would be normal in that culture, appealing on behalf of his daughter. Whereas, in contrast, the woman, the bleeding woman, reaches out almost from the cover of the crowd, ashamed to identify herself. 
Jairus would have been head of his social group, and obviously then Jairus' daughter um, would have enjoyed the benefits of that. Um, so we're told that he's the synagogue leader, so part of the ruling class. Whereas bleeding woman, again, status-less and poor. And actually, due to Levitical law, she would have actually been segregated because of her bleeding. So the law at the time would have seen her as unclean and needing to be separate and segregated from community. Uh, perhaps touched on a little bit already, but, but Jairus' daughter, as part of that ruling class, would have been privileged and wealthy, whereas we hear that the bleeding woman is, is poor, and also, not just poor, but had been exploited, so having to spend all her money on doctors who couldn't cure her. And the reason that means she was exploited, that was quite common in those times, so people um, that were, were poorer, less educated, were often exploited by people who would claim to be able to heal them of various physical ailments and it costs money um, so uh, we, we know that's been her experience that she's she's believed the promises of people that have taken her money to cure her and rather than curing her it's just actually made her worse and then we get we've again got this distinction so Jairus's daughter uh, Jairus falls at Jesus's feet which was normal practice to grant honor prior to asking a favor so it was kind of Jairus saying I recognize you as worthy of honor I'm now going to ask you for something and the bleeding woman falls at Jesus' feet as she then becomes the priority um, over the correct action expected by Jesus. And we'll look more of that in a sec. So really interesting, I think, to see those, those distinctions and how Mark deliberately puts these two alongside each other to expose the different experiences. And something to also note in this story here is, is actually I think there are two types of healing that have taken place. So the woman reaches out to touch Jesus, immediately feeling when she does that her body was free of suffering and the bleeding has stopped. So you think, great, job done, that's the end of the story, but it seems not. So after that, Jesus searches her out from the crowd, and when he finds her, what's the first word he says to her? He calls her daughter. Daughter. And who else is called daughter in the story? Jairus's daughter. So what a second healing has taken place? Well, I think Jesus in front of the crowd, uh, in Greek, the oklos, known as a term to mean like the lower class, poor, uneducated, people with low honor, so not the ruling class. So in front of them, as well as Jairus and members of Jairus's household who uh, we know were the ruling class, the privileged, the educated, and the ones with honor. So basically in front of both of those groups, top and bottom of the, of the honor scale, Jesus calls this woman daughter. He commends her faith and he tells her that she's healed. So Jesus gives her honor. And in doing so in front of everyone, restores her into community. So she can be accepted again. She doesn't need to be segregated anymore because Jesus has called her daughter. He's communicated to everyone that she has honor and worth. So from the bottom of the honor scale, she intrudes upon an important mission on behalf of the daughter of someone on the top of the honor scale. But by the story's conclusion, she herself has become the daughter at the center of the story. <sighs> so cool. <laughs> I just love this story so much. So the bleeding woman is no longer the bleeding woman. We can call her something else now. We still don't have a name, but um, yeah, she's freed from her pain. She's restored into community and acceptance. And that, like that for me would be enough. That's a really cool story. Um, that's, we're done, but we're not done. And on hearing that Jairus' daughter has died, Jesus then goes to the house, like you do, and raises the girl to life. So why is that? Well, because I think, again, what Mark is probably trying to communicate here is she's important too. 
uh, because in this kingdom that Jesus has announced is, is a, has arrived, that he's, you know, his kingdom, there's this place for everyone. Everyone has honor and worth. Everyone deserves to be healed and whole, whether you're at the top or the bottom of, of any social scale. And again, I, another just little Chad Myers bit of gold. Jesus' new social order liberates the lowly outcast and snatches the noble from death. So wherever you are, there's a place for you. There's a place for everyone. I just, like, I have loved preparing this talk because it is just one of those stories that I just go, I just love following Jesus. I love that this stuff, that the stuff that he did, like, you can, see, you can feel the sort of shockwaves that I would have, you know, the impact that would have had at the time, his, the, the way he speaks to her, to call somebody daughter like that in front of everyone, to even just to concede to a, a woman, you know, to let a woman change the course of his sort of mission or direction it in itself would have been, you know, really shocking. And I just, I love it. And this is, this is why I'm stood here. This is why I do what I do, because I just think everything that Jesus taught and did is just so exciting. And there's just so much, um, you know, if, if we really lived like that, you know, that's a what if question for me. What if we were, we were able to do some of those things? And I think the whole issue of, of healing is obviously a completely different, maybe we'll do that at some point, because I've got a lot of questions around that. And it's hard, you can't ignore that part of the story, can you? And, you know, I've got loads of questions about does that happen today? And like, why does it happen with some and others? And, you know, all of that is really difficult. And so I think maybe where it does leave us is with more questions that we can't necessarily answer. But for me, some of the questions that this particular story raised uh, was was particularly about you know how can I do that you know in in, a, in these sort of social contexts these 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 like the equivalent of what you know what might exist like that today it's such a creative way isn't it that Jesus turns all that on its head and what are some of the ways that that we can we can do that in some of the the contexts and, and social environments that we're part of so in in our social group or class society workplace community all the the groups that we're part of who is perhaps given the greatest honour and who is maybe given no honour? And what are the creative things that we can do to subvert and reverse these systems? And also, I think we need to ask, how are we complicit and enabling in some of those cultural norms and values? How do we sort of buy into that sometimes without realising it? And how can we live in a way that brings about this new social order that Jesus showed us? And personally, you know, do we know our honour and worth in the eyes of Jesus? Can we call ourselves a daughter, son, or a child of God? Can we hear Jesus saying that over us, particularly when maybe people have made us feel like we are not worthy of that, or we don't have that honour, or Jesus says that we do? So can we hear the voice of God saying that over us today? I, um, I follow a couple of sort of good news type accounts on social media to try and balance out some of the bad stuff. And I saw a story recently that popped into my mind when I was planning the talk for today. And in keeping with Elizabeth's mention of Gareth Southgate last week, I'm going with the football theme. And uh, this one is actually about Fulham Football Club, to be precise, which I know literally nothing about. And a 13-year-old boy with cerebral palsy called Reese Porter. So Reese is apparently, football mad and is a Fulham fan and he plays for a disability team. And when he recently posted a video of himself in action as a goalkeeper, he received hundreds of hateful and abusive messages online, which devastated him. And in response, when Fulham heard about Reese's story 
and make particular attention to the language here, they made him an honorary member of the first team. So if you go on the Fulham website, Reese Porter's listed, I think, as like the third choice <laughs> goalie on their first team lineup. They also arranged for Reese to meet his hero, defender Tim Ream, and train with the team. And in a recent game, Reese came to watch against Bristol City. They even included Reese in their goal celebrations in a video which has since gone viral. So we're just going to watch that celebration which included Reese. Football players in our society are given a lot of honour, aren't they? They're male, they're physically elite, they're very wealthy and well-known. They have status, um, honour and power. But a child with a severe disability in a wheelchair, on the other hand, perhaps sometimes in our society isn't given a lot of honour. Some might see them as weak or physically dependent or unable to be wealthy or hold status. Maybe. But I think what Fulham did reverses that system to me. It restores honour to Reese. It's amazing, isn't it? And so I think emotional and inspiring to watch that. And it reminds me a bit of what Jesus did in the story that we've just looked at. Um, Honour was restored to Reese in front of the crowd. He was given honour. And I just wonder if there are creative ways that we as people that are following Jesus can act to try and subvert similar systems of honour in our society and restore people into wholeness and community. Perhaps it's just as simple as thanking someone who does a thankless job, making sure that they are seen and known. Perhaps it's choosing to notice someone who isn't normally noticed. Perhaps it's choosing to spend time with someone who might be different to us or from a different social status or background. Perhaps it's a public bestowing of honour, a PDA, a public display of affection to someone that we know Jesus would see as full of worth. And perhaps it's also about seeing the worth and honour in ourselves even if others have tried to make us believe otherwise. And I am sure that God will speak to us in the coming days and weeks and give us little moments and opportunities to respond to what we've learned today. And if anything happens where you're given that opportunity, do let me know, I'd love to hear about it. So um, as I close, the, in the early church, there was one act um, that those following Jesus did regularly. And that act also subverted and reversed all the rules of who was worthy and who wasn't, who was unclean and clean, who was in and who was out. It was a, a radical anti-imperial act that practically demonstrated this kingdom where everybody had an equal place. And that act was communion. And that's what we're going to share together now, I think, as a way to reflect on some of this and a way to respond. You're listening to a podcast from Oasis Church Bath. To find out more about us, visit our website at www.oasisbath.org.